This is a Lip Media Podcast. You're listening to Queers, a podcast about politics and culture with Simon Copland and Benjamin Riley. I feel like we should get rid of the music and just... Um, have, just have me singing have that. Doing that. Yeah. Well, you give, you give us a version as well. Dun, 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 dun. Great. Lovely. We we could do like a harmonized one. <laughs> we sing it at slightly different pitches and I'll I'll mash them together. <laughs> Perfect. It's the 7th of June, 2019. I'm Simon Copland. And I'm Benjamin Riley. Welcome to Queers. Each episode, we talk our way through questions on a theme, and this week we're talking about sexual anxieties. Uh, but just before we do that, it should be we should just note that uh, I'm not exactly sure what date we'll be releasing this, but it will be well after the 7th of June. We are recording this episode. Uh, this is a two-parter episode, so we're recording both of these in two days. Uh, we've recorded both our last episodes uh, a couple of weeks ago and these episodes in uh, both times we've recorded two at the same time. Uh, that's because I'm about to go away on a five-week trip uh, to Europe and we're not going to be able to uh, be doing any recordings at that point in time, but we wanted to keep our episodes going, make sure we didn't have a big break. So we're just doing a couple in some batches. And uh, so this episode will actually come out well after the 7th of June, uh, probably uh, into July, actually. Uh, but you, uh, the content we're talking about today will not be sort of time sensitive. You know, we hope you still enjoy it. And, you know, we'll be talking about, so you know, what we often do in this podcast, talking about things that... Uh, sort of timeless in a way. So, uh, you know, uh, I'm really looking forward to the trip and I hope you all enjoy this episode. I don't think we, we need to um, mount quite such a uh, a, a firm defence of what we're doing. I think I think it's, you know, it's good that we're organised. It's good that we've got our shit together enough to uh, to bank up some episodes. Which yeah, is, I think uh, last time that nice. we, um, you and I both went on trips, we had like a big break of like six or seven weeks with no episodes. So... I feel like it's. I think like it's nice to be on top of things. Yeah, it's not a. Uh, it's not a common experience for me <laughs> 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 to feel like I'm on top of things at least. <laughs> um, so speaking of time sensitive, one thing that I did want to talk about briefly, which which will be old news by the time this comes out, but I thought it would be nice to give a shout out to it anyway, is that we've had some really great news just in the the last couple of days before we've recorded this, which is that. The plan by the Therapeutic Goods Administration in Australia, which is the body that basically approves or decides what medicines and other substances are are treated in in what ways in terms of legal classifications and that sort of things, uh, had planned to change amyl uh, poppers, so... um, they call different things in different places, amyl nitrate or, or poppers or the, the things that you sniff uh, as a sex aid, basically, were going to be put into a, a higher class of drugs that would have made them uh, illegal. Banned, right? Effectively banned, yeah. I mean, they're, they're, they're sort of in a – they up until now have sat in a, a murky legal area. It prompted a, a really fantastic grassroots campaign from within gay communities – to challenge the decision that the that the TGA was was planning on making and to to have them regulated in a in a way that made a lot more sense and the TGA announced this week that they are not going to be put into that higher level of classification and instead will be uh, available 
through pharmacists as a sex aid, which is fantastic. It sort of takes that actually takes it out of that murky position where you know I, I mean there be people who have no idea how to get them where you can actually now go buy them at pharmacies. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, there's still so some there are different classes of them, and and they're being treated in slightly different ways. So some of the ones that are considered to be more dangerous are being are being banned. But I I think I mean I'm not aware of any anyone in who, who's a regular user of these that would have a preference for one kind of chemical makeup over another. So I, I think I think it's fine that some are being banned, while others that all kind of serve the same function are, are actually being made easier to access in a safe way. Yeah, it's great news. You know, we can we can critique uh, queer politics a lot and the way that pragmatic political action takes place around queer issues on this podcast quite often, but this is such a great example of a, a grassroots political response from within our communities that has led to a really fantastic outcome combating the criminalization of of queer sex. Yeah, and I think this is, you know, for me it's one of the big things about this is the focus on sex and the the willingness of this campaign to embrace queer sex and not to shy away from it. You know, there's and I think you know for something like this it's it's all about sex. Like there's nothing you can't not talk about sex when talking about something like this. Uh, and so it's really great to have seen a campaign that did engage in sex, that talked about queer sex, and that won. So I think these are all really positive things. Totally, and and actually does dovetail more than I realised with the stuff that we'll be talking about on the episode today. Yeah, well, let's get to that then. A couple of months ago, we got a fantastic email from a listener in response to our episode about queer sex. Well, our episode specifically about queer sex, that is, Filthy Queers. The listener posed an interesting question. In communities and political movements so often focused on sex, how do we include those who cannot do sex? This question has got us both thinking quite a lot, and we've decided to dedicate two episodes to discussing the issue from a couple of different angles. Today, we want to talk about sexual anxieties, how they can manifest within queer communities and their relationship to queer politics. Hang-ups about sex are certainly not uncommon, but what do they mean for communities often so focused on sex? Where do sexual anxieties come from? What is different about them within queer communities? And how can we deal with issues of sexual anxiety within community spaces that are so often focused around sex and sexuality? So Ben, let's get started. Obviously, sexual anxieties are a thing that everyone encounters to some extent. Do you think it is different for queer people? Uh, I think... I don't want to overstate the specificities of sexual anxieties for queers because I think it's important to, to acknowledge and continue acknowledging that... Like everyone has anxieties about sex. They're kind of deeply embedded into our society as a whole and and have been for a long time. I think that there are a few things that make some of these issues specific to queers. I think that the ways that queerness generally is othered and seen as shameful or abnormal, particularly in the experience of people first coming out and, and as kids and as teenagers is obviously in sexual development going to play a huge going to have a huge impact on on how those anxieties might manifest. So I think that that is an important distinction. And then I think specifically for gay men as well, the legacy of AIDS has a, a, a massive impact on how sexual anxieties manifest, and that fear of of contracting HIV and the complexities around that 
uh, are obviously going to play a role for lots of for lots of men in in particular. Yeah, actually, that's even that's uh, you know I hadn't even thought of the point of HIV/AIDS before we started this conversation. Uh, but it's it's so it's so obvious in terms of a, a specific thing that sort of is so dominant within uh, queer spaces and gay male spaces in particular, uh, and something that is really drummed into gay men uh, about that that's uh, that potential and the and the fear associated with that. I think creates a lot of, of of real anxieties and I think there's been so much stuff about prep uh, as being a thing that has sort of eased a bunch of sexual anxieties for people for gay men in particular as a way of sort of sort of lifting a burden almost uh, and it's interesting you know I think that that's a slightly different topic from what we're talking about today but I think there's some real interesting dynamics that exist around that but maybe we could go into you know I think it might be worth is it worth going into we've touched on this a lot on the on the on the podcast this sort of othering of queer people and I think we speak about that in terms of a whole range of political issues and, and and the sort of response that comes through respectability politics. And I'm intrigued about, maybe it's worth just delving in a little bit about how that influences the way we talk about sex in particular. You know, in this episode, we're talking about it in a way that thinks about this sort of almost at a micro level. You know, how does this influence individuals? How does this change the lives of people? How does it influence the the sex lives of people? Um, Because I think that you're right that we live in a society in which sex is different and and, and almost considered shameful for everybody. Uh, But I think it's particularly true for queer people uh, and I and and I don't actually think this would be even more so in many ways for for example uh, lesbian women where I think we talk about lesbian sex or uh, you know women on women's sex a lot differently uh, and uh, than we do gay male sex I think those spaces are often less sexualized or when they are sexualized they're sexualized for men's interest for for straight men's interest um, well so, certainly from the from the perception of people not in those spaces I mean yes. there are like because obviously in reality so I'm thinking about the sec- the outside forces that influence those spaces is what I'm yeah trying to yeah yeah uh, totally because you know we, we would certainly never claim that obviously there are massive like kinky sexy uh, lesbian communities yes yeah absolutely yeah sorry i'm thinking about how we how we perceive those spaces and i think we often perceive gay male spaces to be much more sexualized uh from a outside stereotypical sort of perspe- perception you know they when we think about gay male spaces i think a lot of people think of like queerest folk that sort of sexy you know you go for a club you know you go to clubs you have you hook up with random dudes it's grinder it's that kind of stuff uh for lesbian spaces i think it's often considered you know knitting circles and you uh, move in with each other after one week and you know that sort of perception of of lesbians as being about commitment and about you know nothing about sex at all is with is, is within that and obviously that's not true but i think that those perceptions i think what i'm trying to get at is that the these sorts of perceptions have a clear influence on on people like that you know these these stereotypes oh, yeah, of these communities yeah, of have course. influences on people and they shape how we think about sex uh and i think that uh, that is something that you know. It's really worth considering the influence that that can have in queer in queer spaces. They're almost like opposite perceptions in some ways. In that gay male spaces are seen as uh, really debauched, deviant sex yeah. pits, whereas for a, for a long time, I think lesbian sex has been considered to not even exist. I mean, the if you look at the legacy of British colonial rule in penal codes in Commonwealth countries, for example, it was often gay male sex that was specifically criminalised because presumably people just didn't even think that two women could or would have sex. 
Yeah, and I think that, uh, you know, and you, you see that running throughout history. You know, the same thing happened in Nazi Germany. It was gay male sex that was criminalised in many in many places. And, and there was an assumption that uh, either lesbian sex didn't exist or that if it, if it did, it was something that you could fix by just forcing a woman to be with a man. Um, yeah, and it wasn't considered, yeah, you know, stuff. and that's, that's sort of awful stuff. And it, but I think, you know, that when there's a whole bunch of history we could talk about in the way that these these two approaches are spoken about. But I think it's interesting to think about how that manifests in our communities today. And, you know, and maybe it's worth thinking about whether we have any experiences of this. You know, it doesn't have to be our personal experiences, but, you know, we, we've spoken about in the in the episode on Filthy Queers, we spoke about the importance of sex within queer communities, but we sort of didn't really touch on the the anxieties that people deal with or the, or the, or the challenges that people deal with at an in, individual level, uh, which I think are, we we have to say are igno- uh, sort of influenced by all of these sorts of histories. Totally. I, I also want to just go back and, and challenge something that you said earlier about sure. HIV not being a part of this conversation specifically. I th- because I, I think it's just like super hard to separate for gay men at least, or perhaps gay men of a certain age, anxieties around HIV from anxieties around sex generally. Like if I think about my own early sexual experiences, there was definitely a lot of shame attached to, you know, the furtive gayness of it all. But I also left most of those sexual encounters convinced that I was HIV positive for like Mm. most of my 20s, I would say, my early 20s at least, and, and late teens. Like that played a massive, massive role in my relationship to my own sexuality. And my the master's thesis, actually, that I'm writing at the moment is very much about the ways that anxieties about HIV have played into the development of respectability politics in, in gay communities. So I think it's, it is super hard to disentangle those things, not just for, I mean, I think primarily for gay men, but that the legacy of the AIDS crisis in terms of its impact on how we think about sex or don't want to think about sex in queer communities more broadly is, is profound and, and continues to be felt in, in, uh, in ways that perhaps we don't always recognise on the surface. Yeah, I, 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 do, I do agree with that. And I, and I think back to my own experiences, and I think that I remember uh, experiences of sort of lying awake or hearing about, you know, hearing information about HIV AIDS, uh, you, know, you know, just coming across a, an ad about STIs or coming across uh, some sort of historical, you know, some sort of story about it, and then spending ages just being convinced that I had... C- I had um, contracted HIV and or that, you know, this, this one experience has probably led to that or freaking out because I hadn't been to see a doctor recently. And that, you know, that, that has passed for me, but uh, you were right in that that is a thing that I remember very vividly as well. And I suspect you and I are not the only ones who have experienced that sort of feeling and those sorts of anxieties. Uh, and I think that it's, I'm, I, would, I mean, I'd be interested to know, what that's like for you know the next for the you know for people who are turning eighteen totally. or nineteen now, um, I have no idea. You know, it's it feels weird to be talking about young people because you know people you know people you know you know we are <laughs> as, old, our, as olds. You know, we're we're in our thirties now, so people who are coming into you know you know into sexual maturity now, you know, seventeen, eighteen, nineteen, uh, exp- you know, learning these sorts of things. I really would be interested to know how that HIV message 
uh, plays out, particularly in an age of things like prep and and the sort of greater knowledge we have about these spaces, the greater options that we have for um, protecting yourself from not con- contracting HIV, I think is uh, it would be super interesting to see ha- how that develops. Um, but I mean, for certainly for me, and as you've said for you, it really did play an important role. I mean, this is literally what my research is about. So it's <laughs> so I will hopefully be able to shed some light on some of these questions. Uh, yeah, well, bit, maybe when you're done. Line. When you've finished written your thesis, we should have an episode about your thesis. Oh God! If I ever if I ever get there, um, I'll I'll be pushing for an entire year of episodes about my thesis. I'm <laughs> oh sure. great! I'm looking just forward to, to it. Ma- just to have made it worth worthwhile. <laughs> yeah, and I think it's kind of interesting to think about the nature of like generational turnover when it comes to things like shame about sex in queer communities as well, because we. As, as we've probably spoken about on the podcast before, one of the kind of weird things about queerness is that despite the fact that we have this history, because there aren't the same mechanisms as there are in a lot of other communities for transmitting historical information in that it's not, for the most part, queer parents having queer babies and telling their queer kids about the history of the community. I mean, that that's true sometimes, but for the most part, it's not how do people know about this stuff? And I think the answer is that often they don't. And so with every generation having to kind of rediscover this stuff on their own uh, anew each time, it's interesting to think about how something like, I mean, the the AIDS crisis being one example of, of something that happened within our lifetimes but we don't have direct experience of and how that might yeah. impact our experience of sex. But even things like, you know, we've made great strides in queerphobia, just a reduction in queerphobia over the past few decades. But what is it? So so even if you're kind of coming out now and, and growing up in a in an environment where there may be less queerphobia than there has been in the past, I, I can't help but assume that there are going to be some remnants of the historical legacy of, of queerphobia that's existed for uh, you know, centuries really in, in some form or another that that trickle down and, and impact people's experience in some way, even if it is in that really kind of diffuse generational sense. I have like two different ways I want to take that conversation. So I'm going to start with one and then come back to the other. Great. Um, I, I mean, I think that that's so true, but I think that the reduction, you know, the, the, the strides we've made in queerphobia has also had, you know, and we've discussed this a lot on this podcast, the that the influence it's had on our discourse around sex, I think, and I, you know, in terms of the 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 loss of sex within a lot of queer spaces or the the removal of sex within a lot of queer spaces, I wonder whether that has resulted in putting the shame onto ourselves almost, you know, in a space, you know, so, you know, in the, in the, in the sort of gay liberation times, it was like about embracing the sex part of queer spaces. And I think that, you know, we can look back on those space, those times and think about them a little bit, you know, uh, with sort of rose colored glasses, because I think that there are a lot more issues than, uh, particularly around the discourse around sex, there have been a lot more issues than, you know, than we're willing, that, that we often see. Uh, sure, but, yeah. but I think that at the same time, you know, when you have a respectability politics that decenters sex, uh, it makes it, uh, I think that has a potential to actually lead to an inverse where, you know, we have a reduction of queer phobia, but that queer phobia is about, think, you know, that reduction is about love. It's about sort of uh, marriage. It's about these sorts of respectable institutions. Uh, and 
it doesn't engage with the, conver- the conversations about the stuff that happens behind closed doors. And I think that there's probably still a lot of shame that exists in that sort of space. And But it's a shame that's now embraced in some ways by a form of respectable queer politics. And that really worries me. And I think that, you know, really strong examples of this, you know, and how this just pl- can play out in real life is, you know, we're seeing the closure of, you know, sex on premises spaces we're seeing the loss of the, a lot of these sorts of spaces uh within queer communities you know i have a couple of friends who are uh, queer, queer women who talk about how hard it is to get like you know there's apparently been some sex parties starting up in sydney for queer women but you know it's very very oh, difficult cool. for you know for that you know that you know they, they sort of wish that they had the sort of access that gay men have to these spaces but you know i, I worry about these spaces closing in gay male you know that you know saunas closing sex on premise bars closing i worry about these things and how it influences how we think about and talk about sex in queer spaces Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Spin your passion into a business of Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records. Yeah, I think that it's absolutely important to say that respectability politics has come about in large part by carving off the bits of ourselves that we deem unrespect uh that that like we have gained acceptance by carving off the bits of ourselves that we deem unrespectable or yep. or or bad and and sex is one of those. So it's it's not that queer sex has become uh, more respectable. It's that we've kind of left it behind to embrace a more respectable uh, version of ourselves. So that's that's absolutely true, I think. And I think the other thing that I was really interested in talking about, uh, and I'm feeling uh, sort of a bit hesitant to talk about it, but I think it's, you know, we can sort of dip our toes in this question a little bit is, I mean, one of the things that, you know, we, we see the sort of growing acceptance of growing, changing perceptions around queer phobia and, and sort of discourses around sex. But I, I'm intrigued about how that plays out in an identity model around sex. And in particular, I'm really interested around the question of asexuality within queer communities and how discourses around that play out. I'm not here to question the notion of, of asexuality at all or the existence of asexuality. I think that that's uh, definitely not something I'm intrigued to do, I want to do. But I think that I'm intrigued about how we deal with the nuances of of this adoption of this sort of this identity that has sort of really become into form in recent years, uh, alongside with the realities of the fears and anxieties that often come around sex. You know, and how do we? I think that sometimes we live in a world uh, where um, often the things that we feel inside uh, sort of are, are given an identity very quickly. Uh, and so rather than the sort of uh, the potential that those things come from social conditions, they, they sort of seem to be essentialized. And I worry about the potentials 
of uh, these sorts of fears and anxieties and hang-ups that exist around sex uh, sort of being given an identity rather than sort of acknowledging as a, sort of an essentialized identity. And I, you know, and I have no problem if people want, want to opt out of having sex, of course, you know, I'm not going to be forcing anybody to have sex, but I'm intrigued about the essentialized nature of that, uh, of that identity and how that can play out when we have all of this history that exists around sexual oppression that can create these feelings in people. And how do we deal with this tension that can exist around that history uh, and do we have a responsibility to, as a community, to work through those histories uh, to try and make people feel more comfortable about sex? Or is it really just up to anybody to decide, you know, okay, you know, um, you know, this is who we are and adopt the approaches that are best for you? Or, you know, of course, we want people to adopt the approaches that are best for you. But, you know, these are, you know, let's adopt identities that can sort of deal with the kind of current social circumstances we're in. Does that make sense? Uh, it does. I am very hesitant to... I think we should be super careful about how we talk about this in, yeah, in large yeah, no, part just too, too. because we don't... We're obviously not asexual and, and I don't know that much about asexuality and I, I just... I don't want to make assumptions here that are, that are simply not true. And I think the the simplest response that I have here... And th- and this is a a bit of a cop out in some ways, but I think that there's some value in kind of going. Ultimately, who gives a shit? We should meet people where they're at and just like take people at face value and try to be welcoming and accepting of everyone and and create spaces that are accepting of everyone. But I also acknowledge that given the yeah, it's hard, isn't it? I think we're going to dig more specifically in our, our follow-up in the kind of second part of this two-parter into the role of sex within queer politics. But, yeah. Mm. Sorry, I know this is like, I guess I wanted to dip our toes in the water of this issue because I think it's an interesting one. And I, and I agree, I don't feel like I know enough about it to uh, to really dive in deep here. And it would, probably this might be a, a thing where we can uh, try and find someone who knows better about this stuff to, to do an interview. Oh, my God, I 100% think that that's what we should do. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I think that there are some really interesting... I, I, I bring this up because it's a debate that I see happening a lot in a lot of queer spaces now, uh, uh, this huge debate around asexuality. Uh, and I think it can be super alienated, alienating for some people and can be super attempting to sort of close the doors, you know, to shut the doors behind us. But I think at the same time, I, I think that there are, you know, I, you know I, I'm the kind of person who wants to, in, you know, interrogate identity politics in different ways. And the, and, and the sort of, uh, it's interesting to think about these different identities and how they play out. And I think that asexuality is a super interesting one uh, in the way uh, that the discourse can run. And I'm not saying that, I really want to be very clear, I'm not saying that, you know, asexual people don't exist or that, you know, that it's, um, you know, that it's not a thing. And and, and I 100% agree with you, you know, let people be who they want to be and do what they want to do. Uh, but I'm intrigued about how we deal with, uh, I, you know, I, I see the potentials of asexuality being a response to 
uh, the sort of deep histories of sexual oppression and, and uh, that exist within queer communities and the, the the deep anxieties that come can come from that. I see actually, uh, you know, it, some forms of asexuality or some as being a response to that or some discourse around asexuality, not all of it, but some of it being a, a response to those things. And so I'm intrigued sure. about how we... Uh, deal with that as a community. And, you know, we had another question that said, that, you know, is sex positivity enough to overcome issues, overcome issues with sexual anxiety within our communities? You know, how do we deal with the, those sorts of sexual anxieties? I see that the potential of asexuality is being one way to deal with that, but are there, you know, I guess I'm questioning, is that always a healthy way or always the best way or are there other things we should be doing whilst at the same time being as, you know, meeting people exactly where they are and being, you know, as open and inclusive as we can be. Yeah. I mean, I think the way that I, my kind of instinct here is in the interests of critiquing our own positions, I suppose, which is something we always try to do at least, would be to flip that on its head almost and say, how can we more holistically perhaps critique the nature of sexual identity generally. Like, yeah. like I, I worry that there is a, a sort of assumption in, and I'm not saying this is what you're doing, but I think it, it certainly can happen in these sorts of conversations. There is there is an assumption in these sorts of discussions that by saying that certain experiences of sexuality are a product of anxieties or a product of, of shame in our communities is to imply that gayness, for example, is somehow a more natural position or a, a position that's not produced in those same ways. Yeah, I think that is so and, true. Total, and I think it's it's really important to because I I feel like this this was something that was really important to me in 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 thinking about exper- experiences of gender diversity. I think some some years back, I I just had this like no shit. Uh, moment where I was like, oh yeah, obviously. Where I was, I realized that I had been kind of essentializing cisgenderedness in my head in ways that I didn't realize. And I, I think just the kind of de-essentialization of of all experiences of sex is is a a kind of interesting and important response to these sorts of questions where we kind of go, okay, well, if anxieties about sex or hangups about sex are culturally produced, which I think, you know fucking everything is culturally produced so so that is i i'm fine with that statement then you know probably so are most experiences of sexuality and the ways yep. that they manifest so so what can we think about this in different ways like the conclusion to come for, to come to that i that i come to from that is is to go well back to that point of we meet people where they are and we just try to kind of accept everyone where they're at like unless we want to reframe this and kind of go, are there, like, when is this a problem, basically? Like, like why should we care? Like, not why should we care, but, like, why Why does it even matter to to interrogate sexual anxieties and sexual hang-ups? Like, who gives a shit? Well, I guess, I guess. I don't, and that, I'm, I'm posing that as a kind of uh, uh, question for us to tackle, I guess. I'm yeah, not saying yeah, 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 actually no. who gives a shit. Um... I think that I think that that's an interesting question to tackle because I think that yeah I guess this is the nuances this is the challenges I find and and I think you're right to step us back in talking about 
sort of the social construction of sexual identities in, entire, in their entirety uh, and how that can... Well, just experiences of sex, you know, you not, know even, yeah. not even necessarily sexual yeah. identities. And I think that the reason I was interrogating this is because of the... And I think that, you know, why I think it's valuable to step it back, because I think this is true for... Uh, uh, for all of our experiences of sexual identity in many ways, that there is that there is a mixture of both value, sort of uh, empowerment that can come from the the way that we identify and the sort of the sort of labels that we can adopt in. But I think there's also the potentials of harm and and pain that can come from these things. And I think that it's interesting to interrogate both of those things together. Uh, and it's why I feel like you know, meet people where they're at for me is. I think it's a great starting point, but I also sometimes don't think it's enough uh, because I think that where we're at, where we're all at, it comes from histories of oppression and histories of uh, othering, and sometimes the sometimes responses. And I think this is broad for everybody. And I, you know, I'm going to step back from my sort of discussion of asexuality. And I, you know, I was talking about asexuality in this context because of our discussions about about sort of sexual anxieties. But I think we could say this for everybody that uh, there is a an interest in my in, that I have that says that well if we acknowledge that there is harm that has come from some of these sexual identifiers some of these sexual labels and I mean gay and lesbian as part of this as well like that there is this that that these labels have been created for particular reasons, uh, and often they have been adopted as a way to deal with the current social circumstances we're in, uh, and to survive within those circumstances. And I totally appreciate that that these 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 labels exist because of the way we want to survive and the way we need to survive, and the embracing of these labels are about uh, sub- surviving within the space. Uh, but just accepting that sometimes means also potentially accepting the sort of crappy world we live in and not thinking about like a broader potential transformative politics that uh, sort of overcomes that and that works to overcome that so that we don't need to be just surviving. Totally. And and look, ultimately, I, I completely agree with that. I think whilst I stand by what I said as a, as a just way to fucking treat people on a day-to-day basis. Oh, absolutely. In terms of meeting them where they're at, I think that you go too far down that path and that's where identity politics becomes this kind of extreme libertarianism that's just like, well, everyone should just kind of, you know, be quote-unquote who they are and we should never push for anything different or, or you know, we should we should forget utopia, basically. Yep. And I, I suppose that, that raises the question of, like, what is the role of sex in a vision of queerness that we see as utopian and is and are sexual anxieties a problem for that and a challenge for that? I feel like that's a really good segue into our second part, uh, which totally. Gonna... I feel like that's that's a good a good um, that that's almost a, a nice place to start for the the second half of the discussion. Excellent. Thank you, everyone, for listening. If you'd like to support the podcast in any way, the best way you can do so is to become a patron on our Patreon. Uh, We have heaps of new content that is going up on the Patreon, and we have some new ideas for even more content coming soon. So if you'd like to sign up and become a subscriber, you can do so at patreon.com forward slash queerspodcast. Otherwise, if you'd like to get in touch or make a comment, there are multiple ways you can do so via the internet. Yeah, we, we're, we're really trying to make it worthwhile for, for 
Patreon subscribers to be giving us money. So um, so keep an eye out there. If you want to email us, you can do so at queerspodcast at gmail.com. We're also on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at queerspodcast. I'm on Twitter at Ben C. Riley. Simon is at Simon Copland, and he's also on Facebook at Simon Copland Writer. You can find the podcast on our website, queerspodcast.com, or subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever it is that you find your podcasts. Uh, and please leave a review and rating when you do so. It really helps us in the uh, rankings on, on these apps and uh, ensures that other people can find us as well. Also, tell a friend. We say this every episode because it really is the best way that people have uh, to find us. If you know someone who you think would get into this and enjoy conversations uh, about about queerness that maybe don't always give you easy answers or, or answers at all, then let them know and, and get them to have a listen. And thank you, as always, to our podcast network, Lip Media. They're, they're really fantastic, and, and working with them has, has really been uh, a joy over the, over the past couple of months. So, so thank you to, to the folk there. Thanks, everyone, for listening, and we will see you in a couple of weeks' time. <laughs>